Hey, this is Jeffrey Shaw from Creative Warriors Podcast, and you're listening to The Inspiration Place with Marion Schulman. Perfect. Well, you did that so well. I was hoping you'd screw up so I'd be able to use that in the blooper reel. <laughs> <laughs> it's The Inspiration Place Podcast with artist Miriam Schulman. Welcome to The Inspiration Place Podcast, an art world inside a podcast for artists, by an artist where each week we go behind the scenes to uncover the perspiration and inspiration behind the art. And now your host, Miriam Shulman. Well, hello, this is Miriam Shulman, host of the Inspiration Place podcast. Today we have a special guest. We're going deep on how to identify your creative genius using compliments. And we're also going to talk about how to price your art. Plus, we're going to talk about why there's no glory in being a starving artist. And finally, how environment affects your creativity. Today, I've invited Jeffrey Shaw, one of the most sought after portrait photographers in the US. Jeffrey photographed the families of such notables as sports stars Tom Seaver and Pat Riley, news anchor David Bloom, supermodel Stephanie Seymour, and C-suite executives from Twitter, Anheuser-Busch, and 3M, as well as Wall Street leaders, too many to mention. His portraits have appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show, in People Magazine, O, CBS News, and much more. So Jeffrey is hardly a struggling photographer, and he's turned how he's been able to manage business by helping others now coach their creative businesses and is host of the very successful podcast, Creative Warriors Podcast. The reason I really wanted to have Jeffrey Shaw on the show, though, is because I absolutely adored his book, Lingo. Lingo is the book to discover your ideal customer's secret language to make your business irresistible. But more than that, he really gets into the nitty gritty and the details of how to price your art so that you can reach a more affluent customer. So without further ado, let's welcome Jeffrey Shaw. So I'm like bursting. Okay, let's go. Questions. So I have to tell you what, what happened. Uh, I remember I already told you the story. Our mutual friend, Jason had messaged me before I got on a plane saying, hey, I can get you these TEDx talks for next Tuesday. And I'm like, yeah, I'm busy. No, thank you. (laughs) I was on the plane. I had downloaded Michael O'Neill's interview that he did with you. And all of a sudden you're saying, oh, I'm doing a TEDx talk on Tuesday, right? So I had paid the extra on on the plane for messaging. And I messaged Jason. I was like, can you still get me the <laughs> somebody I want to talk to? Yeah, you had me at, uh, you were talking about the difference between when you walk into Walmart mm-hmm. and you walk into a high-end boutique. I think the funnier comparison I love to make is that at restaurants, like you walk into uh, a Greek diner and there's going to be a cash register and a bowl of mints. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Right. You walk right. into a nice five-star restaurant with linen tablecloths, right? There's, there's a hostess stand. There isn't a cash register. So same thing is true. If you go walk into Walmart, you walk into, you know, most of your typical department stores, there is a lineup of cash registers. Yet if you go to a high-end store, Burdorf's and Neiman Marcus, you're hard-pressed to find a register, right? It's going to be discreetly tucked away. Burdorf Goodman does an amazing job. I completely making it impossible to find a cash register. And the difference is that whether you are speaking the language of relational or transactional to your customers. So if you're a very transactional business, and this is the irony of it is that in the middle to lower end market, there's actually more focus on the money, mm. right? And in the higher end, it's all about the experience and the value. So you don't draw a lot of attention to the transaction of money. Mm. When you walk into a Walmart, it's you know, it's obvious that this is going to be a money transaction because it's a very cost conscious atmosphere, right? You go to Walmart to be conscious of how much money you can save. You go into a place like Bergdorf Goodman, Neiman Marcus, you know, it's what quality can I get? What experience can I have shopping here? And they really minimize the impact of the transactional experience right down to the visual that you can't find or register. Well, I actually went to Bergdorf's yesterday. I make it sound like I go there all the time. Like, I think I hadn't been there in 10 years. There's the bag. (laughs) So I I wanted to test some of your theories. 
So uh, first of all, well, the main reason I was there actually is, do, do you know the artist Ashley Longshore? Mm, the name's familiar. She's definitely worth looking up. She's one of the okay. top, I would say, 15 women artists. I was just in Bergdorf last weekend myself. Was her, did she have a display? They actually gave her an installation in the downstairs cafe. Okay. I may have seen it because I was just in Bergdorf last weekend. I was in the city and anytime in the city I stop in. And I was just there last weekend, so I may have come across it. Yeah, and they also are selling some of her things up in the home goods section. So they had initially had give a buyer had stumbled upon her art in New Orleans, and she was invited to show her art in that hallway that they have, you know, in yeah. home the home goods. In the like seventh floor, hallway. yeah, outside exactly. the camp. The yep. so stuff was up there, and then she did so well there. Like she basically came in during the opening, plopped herself down. Instagram the phone number of the store that she was there and they were getting calls from all over the country to buy the stuff like it was gone within wow. a week and then they offered from from that experience that they offered to give her an installation in the downstairs cafe and I was told like this is the first time that they ever did that but anyway so I went up I wanted to buy her book and a doodad and I had my wallet out in the cafe but I wasn't allowed to buy it there so I had to go up to the seventh floor. So meanwhile, this is a strategy that I didn't do on purpose, but happens to work really well. If you're walking around Burgess with your wallet out, yeah, those salespeople pay attention to you. <laughs> it's, like, it's like waving around my wallet you know, as I walk down the hallway. But anyway. Just so put your credit card in a lanyard. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> so I was there and I bought... Uh, her book and they were they were wrapping up they wrapped up a plate in tissue paper but then they also wrapped the book in tissue paper yeah i was like oh that was so unnecessary <laughs> and, and the guy did not use tape yep. as you mentioned in your book he he denies that being like a policy by the way so so those of you who haven't oh. read jeff's book Lingo, which i completely recommend um, you you had done some bergdorf research yourself when you yes. first wanted to enter the high-end market. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, and who knows whether it's policy, you know, and the story somewhat changed over the years. I mean, when I, my first experience with Bergdorf government would have been in 1987 when, you know, it was a little more old school, you know, than it is now. Um, although I find that a lot of the principles still uh, remain. I mean, I the cool thing to me, Miriam, is that, you know, I went to Bergdorf Goodman as this, you know, poor 23-year-old trying to figure out how to serve the affluent market. And the cool thing is, is that without it being a long period of time, I mean, a few years later, I became a pretty committed shopper at Bergdorf Goodman. And it still am to this day. So to me, if I want proof of concept of what I teach in my book, Lingo, it's like, well, I went from being a visitor to a store that is so exclusive to actually being able to afford to be a pretty consistent customer there. Hmm. You know, one of the, and so my learning with Bergdorf Goodman as an experience kept unfolding. Uh, So for example, when I became a pretty ongoing customer, uh, when I would go there as a a customer, particularly around the holidays, I would buy gifts for a lot of different people. Uh, I had a special aunt, my mom, you know, there were certain friends that would appreciate the value of the, and the quality that was uh, presented there. And what I loved is that as the shopper, you, you know, this person assisting you as a shopper would walk around with you, you know, I'd say, well, I'd like one of these. And they'd say, well, who's it for? Right. And they would write it down. And what I discovered after my first experience with this, which then became I realized part of their ritual. When I received this box of merchandise, each item was individually wrapped and tagged for that person. Oh, wow. Right? So I knew that this is what, without opening it, and yet I often did, and that's the story I tell in the book about the candle, I, did, I would do exactly what they did, right? I would untie the bow, I would take off the box top, I would unfold all the tissue paper, make sure what I bought for my aunt was intact. And then I'd put it all back together, which is the, why you can't use any tape. If you use any tape, you wouldn't be able to do that. Um, but I learned real quickly how individualized that experience felt when I got the big box inside of it, each individual gift for whomever it was for was individually tagged. And to this day, as a photographer, I still do the same thing. When I take an order, a portrait order for my clients, they might say, I'd like five, eight by tens of this. And I'd say, well, whom are they for? And they would say, well, this is for, you know, this set of grandparents. And there's, in my case, most often my clients are buying multiple portraits for 
each grandparent or each, you know, nowadays it's, you know, you have divorced parents. There's a lot of names to keep track, but um, I still, so each, each family member gets a box contained with the portraits that I know are indicated for that person. And it's, that's what I mean by secret language. Like, man, you would never, I, I grew up going to Kmart. Like you didn't know, you didn't get that at Kmart, right? There's, that's when you realize there's a whole separate language going on, a whole separate vibration. And it's not just the high end because it's just as clearly spoken, if you will, on the low end, right? There's a reason why Walmart advertises rollback pricing, right? There's a reason why the pricing psychology of Walmart is down to the 100th of a cent. Right, because they're speaking a cost-conscious language. They want to make sure you know that you're not paying even one hundredth of a cent more than you have to for this item. So now that you're talking about the, the pennies and cents, which is so interesting. So, Jeffrey, you say in your book how you went from charging forty-eight dollars and two cents, yeah, for eight by ten to three hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, like over 10 years ago, I used to sell on eBay. They actually used to tell us that we would have better sales if we priced past the decimal point, if we let people know that we were thinking about that. Yeah. But I never, it never occurred to me it would only make the sale better in this market because people are bargain hunting. Right. Yes. Right. Another classic example of that is the number, and it's one of the biggest gaps I see when people come to me for coaching and you know their complaints are that they don't feel like they're attracting the right customers. They feel like they're always being talked down. Their, their customers don't appreciate their value, et cetera, et cetera. And then I look at their pricing structure and it's the classic kind of online marketing pricing structure where the course is 197 or 497 or 997. It's like, well, you're the one drawing attention to the fact that $3 matters, right? If you're going to price yourself down to nickels and dimes, then you can't complain about people nickel and diming because you're literally calling forward the nickel and dime minded customer. Yes. Now I have to tell you, after reading your book, I, I had to price like a very tiny thing that I made and I was making a bunch of them. I agonized. Should I price it for $48 or $50? Yeah. Yeah. And and should I just price it for $300 like Jeffrey did? You know, how did you go to $300? And the point is, I think that what people really need to understand is that pricing creates a perception. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important for artists to remember that we are also customers. And you have to think about your own behavior. Um, and yet you have to also make a separation. I'll talk about that in a second. But you do have to pay attention to how pricing, what perception you get for pricing. So when, how often, so most everyone has had this experience where you choose to not buy something because it's priced so cheaply, you don't think it's very good. That's so true, Jeffrey. I see that with artists all the time. They think if they just price their art low enough, it will sell. And sometimes the reverse is true, that they price their art too low and people don't buy it. Right. So because pricing creates a perception. The example I give in the book Lingo is you go into a restaurant with no prices on the menu, there's a perception. And you go to McDonald's for the dollar menu, there's a different perception. Right. So when my clients, when I'm working with a coach client, we're working on their pricing. Literally, the first thing I say to them is, what perception do you want people to have of your business? Let's start there because you can actually control what perception people have by the power of pricing psychology, which is twofold. It's the actual price, but it's also the visual of it. Um, How your prices look visually also has an impact. If you use a dollar sign or no dollar sign, has a visual makes a visual difference. It looks more elegant if it just says five zero, no dollar sign, no decimal point, no zeros, mm-hmm. versus a dollar sign five zero dot zero zero has a different perception. I also was told that people leave on menus that they leave off the dollar sign because it's so what you were talking about before. It's that right. idea that we're not focused on the price. Right. We're telling right. you it's a price, but we don't want you to think of this as a price. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, for the most of, as, as a photographer, for most of my career, I didn't use, it's not really until we, uh, the business world became very heavily web-based and our my prices needed to be on the, on the website that I had to constantly use a dollar sign only because in photography, we're all working with numbers, right? If it's a 24 by 30 inch portrait, it's two, four by three. Oh, and if you don't have a dollar sign, 
the, you know, it, it gets confused. There's so many numbers, right, right. Um, but I never use a decimal point or, or, you know, zeros after a decimal point because that's just too precise for a higher end market. Um, and again, the power here, and I think this is a core message I want people to realize. And it was one of my, one of my concerns when writing the book, uh, I had a fantastic editor. And one of the first things my editor said to me was make a list of all the objections that you can imagine people are going to have reading the book. Let's just cut off the objections, cut off the the bad reviews. So one of my big concerns about an objection would be that the principles that I teach in lingo are only for the high end. And they're not, right? They're not just for the high end. If you talk about percept, like what perception you want pricing to have, when you talk about uh, all the concepts I talk about in the book really are applicable to, because that's the power I want entrepreneurs to have, particularly creative entrepreneurs. I want creative entrepreneurs to have the power to create the business they want more so than any other type of, of business person or entrepreneur, because we as creators go into business because yes, we want to be financially successful, but more than anything, we want to, we want to give our gifts. We want to be personally fulfilled. Yes, of course. I become a professional artist. I could paint just for fun, but I know that I have to make money if I want to be able to dedicate myself to this full time instead of getting another GOB. So to me, I want, I want creative entrepreneurs more than any other type of entrepreneur. I want creative entrepreneurs to have power and to realize that they can build a successful business. It's not an either or by any means. And there's no, um, there's no shame in being financially successful because Miriam, when people of that sort, that ilk get free from financial stress, they just become better humans. Mm. Right, they they will do more. They their up their whole soul and spirit is uplifted when free from financial burden. So there's no shame in having a successful business because of how much better you become at what you're already gifted at. And I want to also refocus this a little bit more specifically on artists because I think that there's too many of us buy into the starving artist myth mm-hmm. and then feel shame about asking too much money for something that they love to do. And I actually wanted to read to you something I had highlighted in your book about asking your worth. Mm-hmm. You say creation is a generous act while creation may come from within. Ultimately it is a very generous act to beautify the world with art, create products and services that make life easier and in one form or another have an impact on the world, be it locally or worldwide. Make no apologies for your act of generosity and be sure you get paid what you're worth. Yeah. Here's where I think people get hung up the most is they have a hard time charging for what comes easy to them. Mm-hmm. And yet that's actually the, that's the an alignment with your gift. Right. What comes in, we have a, here's, I'll give you a specific example. Having worked with so many photographers, photographers that photograph weddings have no problem charging a lot of money for weddings because it's hard. It's hard work. It's hard labor. It's a lot of hours. They have no problem charging a lot of money. They eventually get worn out. They come to me to transition their business into more of a portrait business model. And they have a hard time understanding how can I get thousands of dollars for a family portrait? It only takes me a couple of hours and it's easy and it's fun. And I'm at, you know, I'm with, it's easy. And I'm, but that's what comes easy to you is often what the world wants most from you. So one of the exercises I suggest my coaching clients do, which always turns the world upside down is to make a list of compliments they've heard throughout their life to help them get in touch with their natural gifts, but then also to, to get clarity about the, the business model they can build because a lot of entrepreneurs uh, struggle. That's why this exercise of looking at your compliments is really powerful because the world around you has probably been telling you or pointing out to you your innate characteristics all along that you have undervalued. In fact, one of the things I tell my clients when they're doing this exercise is to pay particular attention to the, the compliments you want to shrug, shrug off. Like, oh, but that's no big deal. Right. As soon as the words enter your uh, your mind, oh, well, that's easy for me. There's your value. Interesting. And that I think is the biggest hang-up is that we have a hard time. That's where the whole starving artist modality comes into. It's it's connected to my worth is connected to what's hard. Right. How can I charge for how can I, I charge doing for? it? 
Yep. Right. You have to detail. So one of the quotes that I, I use to kind of base this is because again, I'm working with people who want to find their passion and want to find something they're deeply connected to. And I'll say, you know, find something you're so passionate about, you'd be willing to do it for free and then never do it for free. I love that. <laughs> right? It's that simple, yeah. right? So find that thing that makes you so passionate, you would love to do it for free and then never do it for free because that's actually pointing to your greatest gift. Now, you said something interesting back there about you being worried that people thought you'd only be talking about the high-end market. Yeah. And I almost was wishing you had like the sequel to this, how to talk to your high-end customer, because those were the parts that I was like, yes, give them a pen, put a pen with their order. So, um, So what I'm referring to is, Jeffrey, you talk very beautifully about how you would make their holiday cards and actually include Mm -hmm. a a silver pen with the order. And to me, this goes beyond actually talking the language of your customer. And it's about delivering that high-end experience. Yeah. For your customer. I think it's even beyond that, honestly, Miriam, because when I speak of lingo, yeah, lingo by definition is a jargon, right? But I'm reframing what it means to, to me to speak someone's lingo is to speak their inside heart code, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, if you think about like lingo amongst teenagers, lingos, you know, you know how twins can have their own way of communicating, you know, almost, especially as toddlers, like nonverbal, that's lingo to me. Like I love watching that when babies have a way of communicating because they're actually getting each other so specifically. That to me is lingo. So lingo to me is a common, used to speak someone's lingo is a combination of understanding their life values, their priorities in life, their essence, and done by the way with complete empathy. And again, objections that I was concerned about in the book, and I, I said it right aside at the beginning, is that this is not about being clever or manipulative or getting into people's heads. This is about having the largest capacity of empathy you can imagine, where you are actually willing to walk in the shoes of someone that you may not know right now or you don't understand, and to do so free of judgment, free of, of assumption, just completely open-hearted and say, you know, hey, believe me, I, I don't necessarily be- agree with the even the political position of some of the very wealthy people I serve. But I don't have to agree with them to, to have compassion for them and understand. I, have, I can tell you honestly, Miriam, I have such a deep understanding and compassion for the challenges of being wealthy. And in, in a lot of ways, that's what I was addressing as their family photographer. So for example, when you have money and money is no longer an excuse, it's, there's a lot of pressure on you. So uh, you can't send two of your kids to an Ivy League school and send the third one to community college. You know, but for most, like I'm the youngest of three kids and you could literally see my parents' finances deteriorate as I, as they had, you know, most of us, when we have children, our life, it sets us back financially. And I was the third. So I was the one that tipped the scale, right? They had to move out of my grandmother's apartment that they lived in, probably renting it really cheap, if not free. And they had to buy a house because, hey, life was legit now. There were three of these brats running around. My mom had to go back to work. I was the first amongst the three kids that was a uh, latchkey kid. You know, my primary brothers had a stay-at-home mom. I came along and she had to go back to work, right? So for a lot of families, us normal folks, life deteriorates the more there are more children. But if you have money and money is not an excuse... Now, here's the interesting thing. Here's how this really plays into my role as a photographer is that no parent I work with ever wants to answer the question to their child, why does Johnny have more photographs than me? Mm. You know, why did you photograph Susie's bat mitzvah, not mine? (laughs) Right? Right. It's not a choice. Right. So the level of responsibility and being buttoned down that is on someone that has affluence, it is tremendous. And I have a tremendous amount of compassion for that, both for the children and for the parents. I understand the pressure for the parents and I understand how it feels to be the child. So do you act as a safety net to keep them from forgetting? Because you know the reason why there's less pictures of the second and third child is not because they ran out of money or they love Johnny less, but they got busy and they don't care as much about having photos as they did for child number one. It's a combination though. I mean, I think, you know, I said, I mean, if you're middle socioeconomic lower, I mean, my family, I would say kind of ran at them. I mean, just life became more challenging. That's why the younger child gets hand-me-downs too, right? You just, you need to um, reuse things and it is, yes, they get busy. So yes, to your point is correct. I mean, 
I felt, I've always, I always felt as a photographer, as, a, as an artist for these families, I actually felt like my real role was to help them be the most responsible parents they can be. Now, I assure you, not one person in 33 years ever called or emailed me and said, hey, Jeffrey, can you help me be a responsible parent? Right. Right? They asked for photographs. And this is what I, what I talk about in the book, Lingo, is the difference between acknowledged need and deeper need. We only know to ask for our acknowledged need. We only know, know to ask in our lives, even from our most intimate relationships, we only ask for what we know we need. But what's most powerful Think about this in your personal relationships. What's most powerful is when you know your partner or loved one needs something that they don't even have, the, they can't even ask for it, but you know they need it, right? When you can deliver that, that's a home run, right? And, and I make the comparison for anybody listening that might be already making the comparison. Um, there's a very popular book from many years ago called The Five Love Languages, Yes. All right. So I make the comparison in the book because it's, it's, there's no coincidence that, that there's some comparison to what we're talking about here. In a way, we're talking about love language. When I read the five love languages uh, in the early 90s, I think it was, maybe mid-90s. Um, I didn't know, I know it was, it was out that long. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it was because I, the parenting was a breeze for me for my first child, which was my son. My second child came along, my, my daughter and my, my first experience little girl because I had all brothers. Um, I was baffled. I'm like, what is this creature? Like I had no idea, you know, how to handle her no matter what I did. And what I discovered by reading the book is that I wasn't speaking her love language. My son's love language happens to be words of affirmation, which for me was the, what I thought parents did because we often counterbalance what we lacked. Right. So I didn't get words of affirmation as a kid. So when I became a parent, that to me was what the best parents did is they told their kids how wonderful they were and proud of them. So I exalted all that on my son and I happened to meet his love language. But then my daughter comes along and I could tell her she's fantastic to the end of the day. And she kind of knew it. She didn't need to know that. What she was, she was a quality time. What Uh she wanted was for me to sit down and play dolls with her. Uh And that felt like love to her. And to this day, she just wants my time. That's nice. You know, and then my youngest child, my youngest daughter, um, the third, she's physical touch. You know, and I'm acts of service and my then wife was gifts. So literally we had all five languages comprised in our family and it totally changed the dynamic. So I was taking all this in and realizing actually I had been, I had built my photography business that way, but here's the difference. And it's, it's always been a hard thing for me to explain in business. We can't possibly speak the love language of every one of our clients individually. Okay. All right. So you need to look at who is your ideal customer. Who represents what's in a broad sense? Who's your ideal customer? They in common have a love language that means something to them. So I understood the mindset of, because I said, I understand you could say they're affluent, but I, more than anything, I understood the pressures and the mindset and the values for people that had disposable income. Right? But Jeffrey, let, let me ask you something. We talk about the love languages. Don't you feel there are touch points that you can give your customers that kind of hit upon those? Yes. So for example, when I deliver a piece of artwork, let's say it's in the mail, you know, I can wrap it in beautiful tissue paper so they feel like it's a gift. Even though they paid for it, I still like them to feel like it's a gift. Sure. And you have a handwritten note. Okay, that's words of affirmation. Um, so like, there's different touch points that you can add to the experience that might hit yes. upon people's, like the customer love language. Yeah. And you should. That might help yeah. their love language. So yeah. I would refer to it as, what, what I, the way I explain it is that there's a lot language and then there's accents, right? Just like in the United States, mm-hmm. we may all, majority of us may speak English, but there's a Southern accent, there's a Northern, you know, there's different accents. You know, as a business, you want to carve out your lane, right? You want to serve a particular clientele, high end, low end, anything in between that's the language of the value systems of those folks that you want to speak. So I'll give you a a specific example comparing Walmart to Target. Have you ever noticed that they're right down the street from one another? (laughs) Almost always. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right? 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 Because they're they're both serving the same community, but they both – Target is a value-conscious lingo, and Walmart is a cost-conscious lingo. And you don't get a lot of crossover, right? You'll get some Walmart folks go to Target, but you don't get a lot of Target people going to Walmart. Like there's literally a pattern difference there. But the reason they're right down the street from one another is because it all exists in the same community. There are people that are more value conscious and there are people that are more cost conscious. So they can actually play nicely off each other by speaking a slightly different language, a slightly different accent, even though the, the, the uh, socioeconomics language of that area might be the same. 
So to your point, like we would, when people came into my, when I had a brick and mortar gallery and people would come in to see my work, um, you know, the first time they came in, we'd ask them how they take their coffee, but we would actually put that in their file. And I do, I do systematize everything imaginable um, wow. so that you can be consistent. So we would add it to their file, either a literal manila folder back in the day or a digital file in the later years. Um, and the next time they came in for the coffee, the next time they came in for a visit, we would have their coffee prepared. You know, it was this little, yeah. So yes, it's enriching the experience, but again, it's everything that you're doing that is just really speaking to the land. The pen, your pen you mentioned earlier was probably one of the biggest hits ever in that. So I used to design these beautiful, and we still do beautiful custom designed greeting cards you know, they typically were, the inside greeting was typically printed in Christmas green, Christmas red, or blue for Hanukkah. Sometimes a metallic silver, sometimes gold, but you know, the inside greeting was a, was of a color. So what we would do is we would give, so if that was the inside of the card, the return address on the envelope was printed in the same color. So we would give a pen, a nice kind of a calligraphy, small calligraphy nib pen, not that you needed to know calligraphy, but we would give a pen that matched the color of the return address. Brilliant. Right. So now, here's the really brilliant thing about it, Miriam, is that it wasn't actually about it just being matchy-matchy. Mm. It was knowing your client so well that I knew that they would want it to match. And if I didn't provide the pen, they or somebody in their house would be running around town to try to find that pen. But what I really loved about it, Jeffrey, is that you're thinking beyond the customer and you're thinking about the person now who is receiving that holiday card and it's now their experience that it's a holiday card and it's like a wedding invitation all of a sudden because it's the pen matches and it's like it makes it elevates the whole experience for everybody not just the sender but also the receiver of that holiday card i mean i i sign my books my lingo is a red covered book i sign them in red like I, oh, I couldn't awesome. do otherwise. Like I can't use a black pen or a blue pen. I just can't, right? So it's just ingrained in me. So I have a series of red pens that, that match the color of my, co- my book and I sign it. But it's also, again, I also want to walk my talk. These, these little details are in the book. So I make sure that I also demonstrate them in all that I do. One of my other favorite little experiences that we created was, I think it was for my 20th year in business, uh, again, during the holiday season as a promotion, we gave away the number of stamps that somebody would need for the number of cards that they per- holiday cards that they purchased. So if they purchased 200 holiday cards, they would get 200 stamps. And we had a sample of each of the stamps that were available from the U.S. Postal at that time, be it a, you know, a, a very religious one, a more seasonal one, Hanukkah, whatever. So we would, you know, when we took the order for the cards, we'd ask the client which stamp they would like. And uh, again, we would provide that number of stamps. So it's from a business perspective, it's also a really smart model because the gift that you're giving away for free is proportionate to the amount of money they're spending. Yeah. Right. right. So very smart business wise. But, but again, big- it's like I said, you are also then acting as a curator. You're not letting your customer mess up your beautiful card by sticking a tacky stamp on it. Right. And isn't you're, help, that you're all, helping them right. curate the, the exactly. you're helping curate the best experience because there's going to be a perception now, everyone who receives this holiday card, this is a Jeffrey Shaw photography thing. And like how gorgeous every, everything from the pen it's written with to the stamp yeah. you put on. Yeah. And you know, what's cool about that Miriam is that, so in chapter two of the book is about defining your ideal customer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the kind of funny story behind that is I actually wrote the entire book. It was in the hands of the editor, pretty far into the editing. And that's, that's when I started doing the podcast interviews that I was doing to promote the book. And I kept getting asked by every podcast host, well, how do we know who our ideal customer is? And I realized I wrote an entire book assuming people knew who their ideal customer was. Ah. And I realized, oh, they don't. So I had to go back and write what is now chapter two. And the title of that chapter says it all. The title of that chapter is Who Will Love That? which is completely the opposite way that we have been taught or experienced in the world about how to build business. And, and, and this is a really, I think it's really so important for creatives uh, in business to understand is that almost everything that we need to do, the right way for us to do things is almost completely the opposite of what we see in the world. Mm. Right? I mean, other businesses like your cable company and your hair salon can get away with offering discounts to new customers only. You can't. If you're in a relational building business and a building a business so that you want to create a loyalty and retention and, and have people refer you and build a real relationship, that's the last thing you want to do. You want to have discounts. If anything, you want to have special offers for people who have been loyal to you, your patrons. 
Right. Right. And yet the rest of the world is doing it upside down. So we almost always have to do things differently than everybody else. So when it comes to defining your ideal customer, it actually initially has nothing to do with the customer. It has everything to do with you. All right, Jeffrey. So I know you're looking for affluent clients, but what else do you look for in your ideal customer? In my photography business, we do everything we can to attract the clients who want to text as far as their primary form of communication, which is why I'm very Hmm. publicly available with my uh, cell phone. I actually want the clients that text because the clients that are more willing to text tells me a lot about their lifestyle. They're busy. They want to get to the point. They're more likely to pay me the most amount of money. Let me do my thing and never bother me. What I suggest is you first have to define what are your innate characteristics and then ask yourself, who will love that? What's your skill set? And then ask yourself, who will love that? So we're talking to artists. So let's make this a little more specific. So people who are- All right. So yeah, let me circle it around. So you understand. So my innate character, one, an innate characteristic of mine for which I've been made fun of my entire life is that I am compulsively neat and organized, right? And rightfully so, I drive people crazy in my personal life because it's not easy to live with someone like me. But you can come clean up my anytime <laughs> I mean, you want to. I know where everything is. Like, I mean, I just don't, I don't lose things. I mean, I'm- oh my God, I know where nothing is. I waste so much time, yeah. so much of my life looking for things. I know, I don't. Like, I can put my hands on everything. I mean, ridiculously organized. Well, when you come down to that question, who will love that? You know who will love that? People that live a life where they need all their T's crossed and I's dotted. Mm. Affluent people, right? I am such a good fit for this clientele because- I can send portraits and holiday cards on their behalf that they never have to worry about it being received by the recipient in anything less than perfect condition. But it's not just that, Jeffrey. It's also playing into the insecurities of like, like I, as I was saying before, like thinking that you're going to screw it up with the wrong pen and the wrong stamp. You're taking away those problems it's from Protecting them. your own art. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. is. It's... Because I know when I pay extra for things, it's to keep, it's when I'm afraid of making a mistake. That's when I pay more for things. And that's right there is so important. You just said that, Miriam, because one of the results of working with your ideal customers and speaking their lingo is that it, and I say this in the book and people that don't believe until they experience, but it almost makes price irrelevant, right? Mm -hmm. You can charge a premium price when people, the greatest compliment any of us can get as artists and creatives and right. And you can't, you know, if you're, if you're an artist and you want people to buy your stuff, you are also a marketer. The greatest compliment you can get is when someone says to you, man, it's like you're in my head, right? Mm -hmm. That to me is the ultimate compliment because actually I know I'm not in their head at all. I'm actually in their heart and in their soul. People, that's a phrase people, it's like you're in my head, but in order to feel like somebody's in your head, what you really realize is somebody's deeply touched you. That's the ultimate compliment, but that takes work. And that is what lingo is about. Lingo is about taking the time to care so deeply about your clientele, your own art, that you're willing to go the extra work. And I think another really important part for artists and creatives to understand, Miriam, is that particularly as artists, we are almost always serving a clientele that is better off than we are. Hmm. Right. I mean, because we need them to be in a financial position to buy our services so that we can then afford to buy someone else's services, the mechanic to fix our car so we can get to the, the gigs and the appointments. Right. It's it, that's just the way it works, particularly if you're in a creative or service oriented business. We are almost always serving a clientele that can afford our services. So there's a really good chance that the your ideal customers you may not be perfectly identified with that, their lifestyle. There's something for you to learn there. And in my case, it was a huge gap because I grew up lower middle class and wound up serving people of such tremendous wealth. So the, for me, the gap was extreme, but it may just be a notch or two higher. But I assure you for creatives in business, there's something that you need to understand about the, your, your ideal customer's lifestyle that you don't currently know. You need to understand their lifestyle. You understand that what makes them tick, their emotional triggers. There's something for you to learn in order for you to then deliver your business in a way that triggers them emotionally so that they choose you as their choice for creator. That's great. I know we're running out of time and I know I promised I would respect your time, but I did want to circle back to something because I know my audience is going to ask me this. How did you go from 48 
dollars and two cents to three hundred dollars like that's what people that i get asked the most questions like tell me what that magic number is how did you come up with that number did you research other greenwich photographers new york photographers i assure you none of them were charging anything near that um so the story is and it does it how it unfolds the book it really is a lot more so first of all the price that i was charging in my hometown for an eight by ten was forty eight dollars and two cents Right, so right there, there's how did I come up with that amount? Because I was taught a formula on overhead and cost of goods and blah blah blah. Yeah, and I followed it verbatim, forty eight dollars and two cents. Well, meanwhile, I'm in my hometown promoting myself as a high end portrait photographer for which no one is buying it, and yet I had Walmart like pricing. Okay, that's how I learned the whole lesson of lingo. It's like, whoa, I'm literally, you know, I'm saying one thing but showing up differently. Further to that, I realized that. People in this town were not willing to pay $48.02 for an 8x10, right? Not when they're used to going to JCPenney or Sears in the day and getting a pound of photographs for $19.99, right? I couldn't sell. They just, it was a mix of values. And that was the light bulb moment as I share the story in the book of realizing I'm literally barking up the wrong tree, right? I have values that are important to me about photography and handing them down from generation to generation. I'm, I'm speaking the lingo of uh, responsibility and long-term thinking to a clientele that doesn't know if they can pay their rent that month. It didn't work. So that's when I realized that I had a luxury product and I needed to serve people. And just who I was in my soul, my innate characteristics, I I just knew I I was meant for people that had financial means. I got them better than I, I still to this day, I understand them better than I understand my family. Like I just don't understand not being financially responsible. I just don't. (laughs) So, so when I, you know, again, so the pricing thing was a combination of a lot of things. I mean, one, when I went to Bergdorf Goodman, I realized that pricing on the high end is rounded off. You don't do $48. You don't do $48.02. You could just do it 50. Yeah. But, but that's the said, question. Like, okay, 50 is a no brainer. Then it's like, but why 300? 300, right? Why not a hundred? Yeah. Well, because there's more to it than that. So, and I still to this day, particularly photographers, because I know this business so well, but it's true of a lot of other businesses. I start at the top. It's like, well, how much money do you need to make in order to support your life and the lifestyle you want? And then the second question is, what are people going to buy from you? So I literally make my photography coaching clients draft up a fictitious invoice that's realistic. Like what are your, what are your customers going to want to buy? Is it one large painting? Is it one single piece of jewelry? Is it a matching set of jewelry? Like what do you, what's the best expression of your creativity? And again, power. I want creatives to have power. It's your choice to decide what you want people to buy. I don't, in my business, in my photography business, I don't even refer to as an average sale because average means a mathematical formula of a high and low. I want to know what's typical. My ideal customer is going to place the ideal portrait order. So you get to decide what is the perfect expression, the ideal expression of your art and how much money does that, what does that need to cost in order to support the lifestyle you want? And then how much product do they need to buy to equal that amount? So here's what I figured out. I wanted, you know, especially when I was starting my business, I knew then I wanted a typical scenario to be about $5,000 because I was only going to be able to photograph, you know, I probably at that time, I probably guessed maybe 80 to a hundred people. I mean, at the peak of my career, I did 150 to 175 shoots a year. Um, Yeah. And it was just a little, (laughs) about 15 years straight, I did at least 150 sessions and it generated, you know, over a million dollar business um, because the average sale was high. And again, I'm one photographer, but I, if I wanted them to spend, let's say, for example, you want them to spend $5,000 and I could pretty much tell you instead of what they were going to buy. They're going to buy a large wall portrait for a focal point in the room over the mantle or the sofa. They're going to buy two to three small to medium-sized wall portraits representing each of the two to three kids they have. They're probably going to want five eight by tens because they're probably going to keep two or three of them for themselves. And there's going to be two for grandparents. There's going to be probably three five by sevens for aunts, godparents, things like that. And maybe 150 greeting cards was the average. So if I knew what they were going to buy and I knew that I needed that to equal $5,000, I just sat down and figured out, well, this, will, this needs to cost this, this needs to cost that. Because so if they bought, if the ideal customer places the ideal sale, it needs to add up to ideally what you need. Okay. And you didn't do the, the Sears thing like package A, package B, package no. C, right? No. Okay. No. 
you know, and, but I think this is a level of control that creatives and business just don't think about. Like you have to start at the top. There, there is, there's no glory in being a starving artist. So yeah. figure out what is it that you, because again, the, the reason you want to financially succeed is to free your soul from the, the trouble of being under pressure so that you could be even better at what you do. And then you wind up creating a tipping scale at which the, the, the freer you are to do what you're good at, the better your results, which means the more the word spreads, that means the more abundance you have coming in your life. And it's just, you're on an upward spiral. Otherwise, you're, it's a race to the bottom, mm. which is what a lot of artists feel like. They feel like they're in a race to the bottom. Mm. You can turn that around. But you have to turn it around again by thinking opposite of what we see in the world around us and start at the top. How much money do you need to live the life you want to? What are the pieces that your ideal customer is going to buy that you can just tell they're by their lifestyle? And then how much do those individual pieces need to add up to equal the amount of money you need? Forget formula, forget uh, cost of goods. I mean, you probably, do you know the Picasso story on the napkin? Have you ever heard that story? I think story? I have, but go ahead and tell well, us. I mean, whether it's true or not, who knows? It's right. great folklore, but right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, there's a man, paint, there's a man painting, uh, does a sketch drawing on a napkin and a woman walks by and says, my gosh, it's really beautiful. Can I buy it? And the gentleman says, it's $40,000. And she's like, what do you mean it's $40,000? That's a napkin. And he's like, well, that's because you don't know who I am. And it was Picasso. Yeah, that's awesome. Right? A Picasso drawing on a napkin is worth 40 grand at maybe, least. Maybe more. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's probably even more so being on a napkin because it's that's so right. out, of, right? It, it adds a whole different exactly. element to it. It seems exactly. so personal. So it has nothing to do with cost of goods. It shouldn't be based on a price. It should be, you know, it should be based on the heart and soul of the people you're serving and how that fits into the life that you want to live. This was so inspiring. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for spending this time with us today. I'm really glad that we've had this conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you for bringing up the conversation. I think it's, it's, uh, you know, in in the photography, and I think it applies in a lot of businesses, but in the photography industry, I used to call it the dirty little secret. And the dirty little secret of most creative businesses is that those that succeed financially at their art, not only love the art they're doing, but also embrace what they do as a vehicle for something bigger. And for me, I, I enjoy photography, mm. but I love watching what happens to people in front of the camera. I'm not a science geek. I don't love the whole f-stops and shutter speeds. <laughs> I mean, I never buy new equipment. Like that isn't the. I mean, there are there are photographers that that's deeply passionate. But I will tell you, those that are artists that I see that that really free themselves from the financial burden are those where their art is a vehicle to something that's bigger. And for me, my camera has brought me all over the world to meet amazing people that have enriched my life that I now can look back at as much as I lived my life on what I felt was on purpose as a photographer for three decades. I actually think it was all a learning lab for what I do now. It's all those experiences and where that camera brought me as a vehicle that now enables me to stand behind creative entrepreneurs and creative warriors, as I refer to them around the world, for them to have the business they want, because I would not have learned what I learned without the experience of that camera. And you still do uh, portraits for- Very your, little. Yeah, I do. for I, the people who you've already in your customer base? Like yeah, I but not even I mean, friends to you. I'll do like 10 shoots this year and that's it. You know, it's just really the people that the kids are at a stage where I just can't let go yet, right? They're just, they're still- you know, at such wonderful ages that I'm not able to transfer. So, and I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Yeah, I've definitely, the last four years, I've continued to decrease the volume, but sticking with the 10 or so clients that just, uh, if any of my past clients call upon me and I'm available, I will definitely work for any past client. I'm just not marketing myself or taking on any new work. If it's an excuse to go to Nantucket for the weekend, you'll do it. Yeah, I'm not going to, if you want to fly, if you want me to fly to Italy, I'm not right. going to complain. <laughs> All right. Terrific. So this is Jeffrey Shaw, author of Lingo. We'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. And where else, Jeffrey, can people find you? Um, You know, as you can probably tell, I like like relationships. So I'll start with that. So what I've created to give away is called the Lingo Media Kit, which they can get at lingomediakit.com. And in that kit is an infographic because 
by and large, my audience are visual people. So I created an infographic of the five steps of speaking the secret language of your ideal customers. So it's very visual, uh, really handy to have. And there's also a free chapter of the book, which is chapter three, not chapter one, because that would be too easy. I gave away chapter three because it's the foundation of the strategy. And there's also an audio version of that chapter, which has been kicked up with sound effects. And it's kind of fun. So I suggest just go to lingomediakit.com. Again, done like a pro now. <laughs> What's my editor going to do? I got news for you. You can fake it. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I did acting in uh, high school. Excellent. Nothing Good. ever. Nothing is wasted. Yeah, that not that the truth? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Hang on to all of it. You never know what it's going to come back. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. I like the way you have the little lingo poster in the background. I know, right? Subtle, right? And yeah, I know I'm actually just right? painting here, which is being which is one of my favorite paintings done by actually a former employee of mine uh, who paints beautifully. He painted it of a place that we would often photograph at in Greenwich. But I'm moving it, and the Creative Warriors logo is going there next. So I'll, I'll be flanked. Oh, okay. Then my, you have to crop yourself so you're blocking this. Exactly. And I have to figure out why Zoom isn't cooperating with my camera so I can like <laughs> zoom in on those two things on either side of my head. Yes. <laughs> and like maybe you need to like a gallery light in the back there. Well, that's possible. You, yeah, you I just see. moved into this apartment three weeks ago. So I'm still fidgeting with setting things up. My previous apartment, I, lo- I love this apartment much better and I've got much better views, but the previous apartment was a really dramatic loft and where I would do webcam things was on the upstairs of the loft. And I mean, it just looked like a museum behind me. People were all the time were like, where the hell are you? I'm like, this is my apartment. I mean, I had this massive, really cool light hanging from the ceiling. Like it looked like it was floating because you couldn't tell what was attached to it. It just looked, looked like the naming hat from Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> it's, it had all this chrome and metal behind me. So I'm trying to readjust to the fact that this current apartment, which the rest of the apartment is so beautiful, but this room is just the guest room. So it's mm. not really as dramatic. So I'm like trying to tweak it. Yeah, but you just hang a little track light and point yeah. at that Although this is later in the day, too. I don't usually do anything after three. I just did this for you, but I don't Thank usually – I try not to do anything after three o'clock other than generate content. Like I do all my calls, appointments, everything from uh, up till three o'clock. And then from mm. three to six or seven is when my brain is developing content. Oh, okay. That's interesting because yeah. I don't. I can't really produce content that late in the day. Most people can't, but that's when I, that's how I wrote my book too. And I think it was just a habit mm-hmm. I got into. I every afternoon wrote the book from three to seven. I'm definitely a late afternoon. I know most people are morning early morning writers. I'm not. I feel compelled to take care of anything and everyone in the morning. It's not until I can take I take care of everybody else's needs that I can like. Okay, now it's my time, and then I can just shut all that out. And so I'm a content generator in the afternoon, which is I know, which is not normal, but yeah. You have to find your own pattern. I tell you, as a creative, and we didn't get into this on the show, but I, I think one of the greatest tips I've ever given, and it comes back to me all the time, is for artists to define whether they're a starter or a finisher. Yes. <laughs> right? Sure. I'm, a, I'm a finisher. I'm not a good starter. So, But oh. when you race whether you're a starter or finisher, it makes such a huge difference because I can get everybody else to start things for me and I can finish everything beautifully. I'm Interesting. just a starter. But it's also, I can see the connection in my photography. That's why as a photographer, I photograph on location because you can drop me anywhere in the world and I can make something beautiful from what's there. But you wow. bring me to a studio with a blank background and I'm like, I, I have no inspiration here. Wow. <laughs> so it helps you get in touch with what you're your soul creativity, I think, is whether you're a starter or a finisher. So that, to me, I think that's also why I work later in the day. It's like it's there's something about being towards the end of the day and just being a finisher. Yeah, that it's it's a healthy way for me to finish my day. Oh, that's awesome. And then you said something else that was interesting. Are you familiar with the book Rest? Um, I know. I mean, I know of the uh, okay. Title. But I've not read it. So you were saying you work from three to seven, which is four hours. So yeah. in the book, one of his um, theses is that people really only have four hours of creativity in them a day, whether yeah. you're a writer, an artist, a musician, whatever it is. Um, so it's, you know, I yeah. found that in- but I also found that's why I moved, honestly. I mean, I, I didn't expect to move to Miami. Um, when I came down here in 2016, it was supposed to just be for three months and I never left. Mm-hmm. Because what I realized, I was such a New Yorker, people couldn't believe I was leaving New York. It's just in my soul. Like I, yeah. it, I never thought I'd leave New York either. But what I realized is that as my business transitioned from photography to uh, personal development and supporting other people, I needed to support myself in a way that I never had before. Hmm. And I needed, a lot of it had to do with environment. 
So when I say I'm writing from three to four, that is often sitting poolside, right? I mean, I wrote my entire book poolside. So I would write until my brain couldn't take it. I would dive in the pool, refresh myself, get out and write. So it's kind of a four-hour practice, but a lot of it had to do with the environment. I don't think I could have pulled that book off in New York City. I mean, I, I play heavily with my environment, which is why I'm very, you know, I believe me, my accountant always feels like I should cut back on my lifestyle a little bit. <laughs> um, and I'll say, you know what? This one thing I will never give up on, I will never give on is, is the environment in which I live because that is everything to me. And I think you could tie it into childhood experiences growing up in an out-of-control environment. But to me, I, I take very, I use my environment very strategically to activate creativity. That's so interesting. Um, so that's a that's, whole nother conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. There's a great book out there um, I read for a podcast. It's called The Language of Man. So what I love about this book is that it's a study of pockets of creativity, like Florence, Athens, even Silicon Valley. Valley. He studies, and the, the overriding question is what came first, the environment or the genius? Why were there pockets like Florence, Italy, where so much art came out of and Athens and Greece? And, um, you know, it does, it begs the question, which came first? Was it the environment that stimulated the creativity or did the creativity create the environment? But why are there certain pockets in the world that have just had accept? And I actually think it's happening in Miami, very much so. Hmm. Um, There's something very interesting happening here in Miami with regards to certainly the art scene. I mean, Art Basel's here. Art Basel's the largest art festival in the world. 300,000 people come a year in December. Um, but aside from that, it's, it's an innovation and startup community like I've never seen before. There's so many fresh and creative startups here. It's fat, more innovative innovation centers and really vibrant startup community that I think Miami is going to put itself on the map. But it's a really interesting study, and he doesn't necessarily strive to answer the question, but leaves it up to you to decide which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? which came first, the environment or the, or the art. It's really interesting. But then other social scientists will say is that once you have a community of artists, that helps the creativity flourish. Yeah. To me, it's, I, I think of it as you know, kind of one leads to the other. I think a lot of artists are innately drawn to grit because of the certain amount of starving artists who struggle and because of the starving artist modality have tended to choose places, you know, we're more rent affordable, if you will. And the grit inspires the inspiration. But once that gets going, then you start attracting your patrons of the arts. And then it, you know, it turns around. I, I made a funny observation a couple of years ago. I was driving out to P-Town. The first, I had been to P-Town for the first time uh, a couple of years ago. And have you ever been to Providence Town? Have you ever been to Absolutely. P-Town? We go oh here. It's so gorgeous, right? And I, I'm driving out that I'm thinking, how is it? I was with my then partner. I said, how is it the gays ended up with all the best real estate in the United States? <laughs> <laughs> and it was like that same kind of quiet. But then I realized, I said, you know what it is, if you actually think about it, you got Fire Island, you got P-Town, you got South Beach, you know, Miami Beach. Yeah, yeah. I mean, literally the gays have ended up with all the best real estate. And the reason is, if you actually look at it, it's, it's, a, it's a trajectory from a major city. Mm-hmm. Because gays were in the day an outcast, right? We, would, we needed to find our common ground in our community, people to bond with far from the metropolitan city. So Boston so to town, right? So if you actually look at it, Fire Island from New York City, all the, be- and, and what they say wound up being the most, these remote areas that ended up being the best real estate. Yeah, but Jews have the same problems too. We always, if you want to live with Jewish people, it's the most expensive places. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yes. exactly. But the reason why is, well, for Scarsdale, which is where I live, it used to be that they didn't sell real estate to Jewish people in Pelham. Yep. So we could rent right. in Scarsdale. That's how right. it ended up transforming yep. into a Jewish community yeah. because we, we started off as renters. Yep. And then you yeah. wind up with one of the prettiest towns there is, right? <laughs> <laughs> so saying, I mean, it all comes around. There's always a little... Like, I think just, what you were saying before is like a lot of these pockets, it, it's like where they started off, where the starving artists were trying to get to what's the most affordable. Right. And part of... Um, the art community are there's a lot of outsiders in an artist community that includes gays and and other out other people who are on the outside that is sometimes what makes us being able to be an artist is you're on the outside looking in in exactly yeah so you start off in these places and then they become because of the art they become these sought after places exactly Yeah. So thank you again so much. This was really inspiring. 
Congratulations to you on having a new podcast. And um, you should come to Podcast Movement sometime. I am. I'm are you? Good. All right, I'll be there. Are you speaking? No, I'm not speaking. I didn't attempt to, but um, I haven't reserved or anything to go, but I'm sure I'll probably, I'll, I usually end up going. Yeah. I have to like need someone to help me navigate which speakers I'm supposed to go to, or maybe I just, yeah. maybe the idea is just to hang out with people and talk. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot to learn, but the best stuff always happens in between. It's, yeah. The, it's yeah. the meeting of people. And I just, I find it really an inspiring convention because the nice thing about podcasting is that it's too new, new for anybody to be jaded. Mm. <laughs> so everybody just pretty much has a good, nobody, people, podcasters don't have huge failure stories yet. <laughs> so it's a really optimistic convention, because, you know, especially being in the photo industry where, you know, 50% of the audience are down and out and depressed because the industry has been around so long. Um, where you go to something like podcast movement, everybody's up because everybody, it's all new to everybody. That's very upbeat. Okay. Be well. Thanks Thank for your time. So well, that wraps up episode number three of the Inspiration Place podcast. Wasn't that amazing? Let me know what you think about how the environment affects your creativity. I would love to hear from you. You can send me a direct message over on Instagram at Shulmanart over there. You can join my Facebook group. It's free, the Inspiration Place community. Just have to request to join. You can drop me an email at miriam at shulmanart.com. Or as always, go take a look at the show notes for this episode. You can find that at shulmanart.com slash three for everything related to this episode. And if you like the show, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes. Until next week, I'm Miriam Shulman. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Inspiration Place podcast. Connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash shulmanart, on Instagram at shulmanart, and of course on shulmanart.com. 